Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Peter Bregan. He's a psychiatrist. He was referred by a wonderful lady named Pam Popper. And we're going to talk about uh, COVID-19. He has a uh, publication out called COVID-19 and the Global Predators. We are the prey, which sounds very ominous, but unfortunately uh, true. So Peter, thank you for coming. I'm pleased to be here. Well, uh, tell me a bit about your background and then, you know, how did you first start interacting with, uh, you know, with COVID, like how did it enter into your life? And but first, a bit about your background before that. Yeah, well, it's all related. Uh, first of all, I've been around a long time. I'm um, 85 years old and very active. I still see patients. I still write books. I've written more than 20 books. Four of them have been co-edited or co-authored with my wife, Ginger, as is our current book, COVID-19 and the Global Predators. And I, before getting started with the COVID-19, I, I enjoyed being called the conscience of psychiatry because I've been doing reform work my entire life, really, going back to age 18. As a Harvard undergraduate, I started working in a state mental hospital as a volunteer and I ended up running a giant volunteer program. And in those days, there was some hope for psychiatry. There is no longer any hope for my profession. But back then there was a lot of hope. There were social psychologists, there were psych, uh, psychiatrists, social psychiatrists, psychoanalytic psychiatrists who could take a psychiatric residency in community psychiatry. There was a lot going on in addition to traditional biological psychiatry. However, when psychiatry became wedded with the drug companies, it became very little more than a sales department of the pharmaceutical industry. So that led me to go into private practice, you know. And uh, when I got started in practice, I found out that lobotomy was coming back. And that I just could not accept. I had thought that was long dead. We'd never see it again. They were holding national com- conferences around really? the world. Just for people that don't know, what, what yeah. happens in a lobotomy? It's, uh, it's well, barbaric, the, I'm sure, right? Yeah, the original lobotomy was to go into the highest centers of the brain. That's everything that gives you a bulging forehead that differentiates our appearance from uh, even the apes and even more so our dogs. We have this big bulge and that's the filling up of civilization through evolution uh, into these multiple folds of cortical function. So it's the seat of higher function. When you damage it, You always eventually, if you damage enough, cause apathy, indifference, loss of autonomy, you become more robotic. Well, in 1938, a Portuguese named Moniz, M-O-N-I-Z, got the Nobel Prize for going into the brains of state mental hospitals with a big spoon and scooping. And uh, instead of shock worldwide, he became famous. And then Walter Freeman here in the U.S., Divide, it was a psychiatrist who shouldn't have been doing anything in regard to surgery on the brain, but he took it on himself. And he would do um, operations by slipping ice picks around the eyeballs. He didn't know enough to do actual surgery, banging the, uh, banging, uh, the back of the ice pick until it broke through the thin layer of bone behind the eyeballs. And then he swish them around. He would do this to children in his office on the first visit. Oh my God. He ended up doing about 5,000 of the 40 or 50,000 that were done in the U.S., 10% of them. And every 
Everybody was terrified of this man. He was very powerful in psychiatry. The, the violent biological psychiatrists rise to the top in psychiatry. And um, I decided to take this on. I had no idea what I was getting into because I thought, and all this is relevant to COVID-19 because it's about the medical and scientific establishment. I thought I'd have all kinds of psychiatrists coming to my side, professors, you know, famous clinicians and so on. And all I got was a tap condemn my colleagues as unscientific and immoral. And some of them who were talking about how effective this would be on black ghetto rioters were also political. How dare I get into all that? How, how dare I bring up uh, racism because they were operating a little black children in Mississippi. And by the way, I'm not a progressive. I, I was kind of brought up progressive or liberal, but I'm, I'm much more conservative now. And, um, you know, to me, these were, these were terrible things. And I decided I'd just wipe this out if I could. And I organized four or five years, worked with the U.S. Congress, got a psychosurgery commission set up. I, I wrote legislation to stop the funding of it. The legislation wasn't passed, but they stopped the funding. And um, just devoted a, a whole bunch of years. I, I was actually broke four years of this. Uh, and then a psychiatrist wow. libeled and slandered me in a few different places, and I sued him, and I recouped a bit of money. Um, so, uh, one question about this: why, why was, why was there support for this? What was it like? Why is there support for things that just seem to be obviously immoral and bad? Now, looking back at it, why, why do you think it happened? Well, I think that human beings are very flawed. When we get a chance. We, especially in groups, we, we tend to become very controlling, that it takes all the might of a democratic republic to keep us from becoming a totalitarian, evolving in that direction. I didn't know this at the time. And that psychiatry, its whole history is brutal. It starts in the state mental hospital system, which was a forerunner of the Nazi extermination system. That's, I've written a whole an article about that and a couple of book chapters. Psychiatrists were the backbone of uh, the Nazi party in some way, certainly the professional end, the lawyers too, but the psychiatrists were really overly represented because they have a materialistic idea about people. We didn't have the even the phrase then, I don't think, but I was basically attacking transhumanism, which is a big part of the current philosophy behind the COVID-19 abuses. The medical scientific establishment easily goes in an abusive authoritarian direction. I did actually stop pretty much all of the major lobotomy programs in the Western world after a whole bunch of years working at it. And then I tried to take on electroshock and that proved immovable. I'm still fighting electroshock treatment because it is so deeply embedded in the overall psychiatric establishment. So why is that? Psychiatrists damage the brains of their patients, whether they're giving them drugs, shock treatment, or uh, lobotomies with damaging our patients. When I moved on to look at the psychiatric drugs, I realized that, in fact, the major drugs that we've been using since the 1950s in the state mental hospitals all cause chemical lobotomies. So it became kind of seamless an awful seamless realization. Well, then I began to realize that a very big key to this was the wedding of the pharmaceutical industry with psychiatry, in which psychiatry actually lost all of its earlier stuff of being a varied organization, competing kinds of viewpoints. It all became one viewpoint, drugs. 
And uh, we literally became salesmen. You go to a psychiatrist now, you stay for 15 minutes, you get drugged and you go home. Yeah, I was going to say, psychiatrists seem like just living drug vending machines. They are. And they're very mean and cruel about it. If you tell them you think the drugs are hurting you, they give you more. If you ask to come off of them, nine out of 10, oh, probably a much, much higher percentage than that, will just remove you immediately so that you suffer withdrawal, tell you it proves you're mentally ill. This is not cynicism or skepticism. This is just bitter experience over the years. I have written the only, among my 20 plus books, I've written the only medical book that talks about how to withdraw from psychiatric drug. That's oh, really? What, uh, just, just in general, like what's, I know it depends on the drug and the person, but what's an example of some of the protocols that actually work? Well, what works is you pay more attention to the patient than to yourself. I mean, that's the whole starting point. You get to know this person, you find out what drugs should come start first, if there's more than one, and then you very carefully, unless it's an emergency, at the patient's pace, not yours, you help the patient withdraw. And during that time, you support them emotionally, you work with them uh, in the family if possible, so their family is supporting them or their loved one are supporting them. Sometimes it's the children, bring in an older person so I try to make it a group support and help them go through it at their pace. And believe it or not, this is radical. That tells you how okay. backward the profession is because this is common sense. Why are psychiatrists and maybe even psychologists, like they're not born mean people. What turns them into these? Well, uh, we're not sure about that. You know, whether you, uh, we, we went, we're really not sure about this whole birth thing. I mean, if, you, uh, if you're in the Christian tradition, it's, Starts out real e early that we're evil to each other. The Judeo-Christian, you start with, I'm Jewish. The Old Testament, we start out very evil. I mean, the first family, one son kills the other. So human beings have a lot of trouble with violence. We don't have fangs. We don't have claws. We don't have hooves. We don't have a thick skin. How the heck did we dominate the animal kingdom? Even before we had bows and arrows, we dominated the animal kingdom. And we did it by collective violence. And uh, there, there's evidence going back to 400,000 BC of us humans killing mastiffs with pointed sticks. So we've always had a capacity for violence. We always have distrusted strangers. We were, always were in small groups until 10,000 years ago. We were mostly, you know, uh, probably relatively peaceful, though, um, Groups of hunters and gatherers, so sometimes quite small, sometimes up to 25, 30 people, extended families. But we were leery of strangers who could be marauders, and we were prepared to fight, and we were prepared to kill large animals, cave bears, cave cats. So this is in us, and um, it takes family ties, love, affectionate ties, I think, to to really manage our lives well, once we get a little further along and the person is a few miles away and has a, a different feather in his cap or different race, we have a, we have very difficult tendency not, not being violent. I think there's a very sad situation. It's the one that Judaism and Christianity with the one God concept have tried to improve by saying we're all children of one God, you know, let's respect each other and not be violent toward each other. It's very difficult for people 
So if you are jumping ahead to, uh, by the way, I then became very active in lawsuits against the drug companies because all the other psychiatrists were afraid. I became the first psychiatrist to take on all kinds of issues in the courtroom. I've now, up to now, I've been in trial more than 100 times. So you can imagine wow. how many hundreds of cases there are. And, well, what was that experience like? It must have been like, extremely, extremely adversarial. And, like, it's horrible. I don't know, that, yeah. like, it's horrible. But I, lear- I learned to just not get adversarial with anybody. I, it took me a while. But uh, I really learned not to get adversarial with with anybody. And the the meaner the cross examination, the nicer I would get. Oh, really? And that what, what effect did that have in the court? It made them crazy. It, it literally <laughs> sometimes in deposition they'd come marching in. They were going to finally be the one that shut down Peter Bregan. And um, I would I would always respond with care and concern and ask him what what they were upset about and try doing anything to help him out. And certainly I wanted a cooperative effort, but no, they couldn't be mean to me. I wouldn't proceed if they were mean to me. It was a very simple. Huh. And they said, well, Ryan, what are you going to do? Oh, I'm going to walk out in about two minutes. If, if you, once they learn you will actually get up, then the word gets around. That doesn't work. Wow. And the word gets around amazingly fast. And I don't mean to be arrogant because this is awful stuff. I would not wish being a medical expert on anybody, but then I wouldn't wish on them trying to write the book, Ginger and I just wrote. So when COVID comes along, Ginger had always joked. She said, you know, honey, looking back over your life and mine, it looks like God was preparing us all along to, uh, you know, for you to be the conscience of psychiatry and for me to be your partner and to do everything in my power to, you know, empower your work. And um, this was a wonderful combination. I tried to empower Ginger with all my heart. I had a common cause. And... um, Frankly, the work I was doing is so far ahead of the reform movement in psychiatry that it was starting to get boring. I just wish they would read some of my books, the so-called leaders, with only almost no exceptions. Some of them are good. Some of the people are good on criticizing psychiatry. Some of the people are good on alternatives, but nobody, you know, on more loving, caring alternatives, but particularly on looking into the criticism. I mean, uh, most of the people leading who are even critics of psychiatry, haven't caught up with the books I've written and my analyses of the drugs and shock and lobotomy, where they come from, why they don't work, what they really do. So I was beginning to get a little truly kind of, well, I've done enough, folks. The legacy is there. I'm 83 years old. Uh, I'd rather uh, do something new. And then along comes COVID-19. Yeah, what have you noticed with COVID is that how is it? What is it similar to in your past experience? The whole thing. It's similar to the whole thing. Everything I've been talking about. It's inhumane, unloving, uncaring. It's violent. It's hateful. The whole way it's being handled. And it has the ultimate purpose of dominating human beings, dominating humanity, really. I got a whole history of it laid out in our book. Let me tell folks before I forget something unique about our new book and where to get it. The unique thing that we did going back early on when we had our first full manuscript, but we knew it was going to be months to finish the book, is, um, and this was, I think, a unique idea. We decided that if you bought the book in advance, you would get the current manuscript immediately in the mailbox. I don't know anyone that's ever done this. We, we kept that promise. And um, if you buy the book now, and it's still at a reduced price before it goes up on in any place other than our, our 
you know, places that we we do in uh, being on the air and stuff and on our website, you will literally get what is almost the very finished manuscript because it's now in publication process. Hopefully to come out in July and you'll get a 450 page manuscript with a 30 page chronology over a thousand uh, end notes, but very unobtrusively presented. But but right there, you get the whole book, bing, within okay. minutes, hopefully. So one way to, and the book is um, COVID-19 and the global predators and the dedicated websites. So you don't have to fuss with my huge website that I've been building and then Ginger joined me and she'd been building with me. Go to uh, just um, wearetheprey.com www.wearetheprey.com and you'll go to the website and um, you can sign up for the book and uh, the minute you you uh, press I guess the payment button however that works you will get an email okay. and it has the book in it now you won't get an updated book because it's the final version you're going to get the final version people who have been hanging in there for three months we sent them updates of the book too nice okay so the book is chapter there are thousands and thousands of copies of the manuscript circulating out there. And then we've sent many of them to the top media people and to many, many of the people we work with. We're part, you know, we're part of several groups of COVID-19 docs and, um, you know, we just, you know, send the books to them. So we've really worked hard to get it out. And the book is very, very comprehensive in details such as, you know, the exaggerated counting of, uh, of people wounded by COVID-19 and then downplaying. So you get these huge numbers that are absolutely false, 500,000 dead. It's somewhere probably between not 500,000, but 5,000 and 50,000. They're just so corrupt in what they're doing. And it's easy to demonstrate. I'm not the only one to it. Many people have demonstrated that. But why, why is this, uh, do you think that this, well, I don't know why. Why is this happening again? Why has this become two things to think about? There are really maybe three things to think about when you see something evil going on. First one to think of is power, actually, because some of the most evil people in the world had very little interest in money, power, self-aggrandizement. I'm fabulous. I'm God and wealth. And there are two things that are going on right now. They are making tons of wealth off of vaccines, but also lots of associated medical equipment and things like that. But the power behind it has been the vaccination vaccine group. So that's why they are forcing us to all get vaccinated, even though it makes no sense at all. They're trying to, yeah. Oh, they're going to succeed. They're now working on children. I'm in legal cases now. Big difference now is I don't charge for them. We're trying to save America. So I'm working in any reasonable legal case. I've I'm donating my efforts to, and we're in several, trying to stop all of this. Well, I mean, like, for instance, you know, it looks like 14 United States, you know, 14 states in the U.S. have said no to vaccine passports. Do you think that's going to help or, you know? Everything like that helps. Everything like this helps. But this is much bigger than uh, wealth and self-aggrandizement. This is about power. These are power-hungry people. And um, I can give you a little description of what we found. Like take okay. 10 minutes. Can I do that? Sure, yeah. Okay. So we start looking at Fauci and what in the world is going on with this man? Because he's not a scientist. He hasn't published much science at all. He's a 40-year bureaucrat. You only be a four, can only be a four-year bureaucrat by just uh, 
enforcing the power of every president who comes along and of manipulating and all those kinds of things. So, and then one of the first things that I, I found out about him that struck me, and I wonder why it wasn't like on the news all, all the time, and that is that he was on that he is on Bill Gates's vaccine group. This committee, his support group, his consulting group, it's an international group, has only about six people on it. So Fauci is, turns out, he's very close to Gates. Gates later on would say he doesn't talk to the president anymore. The president probably didn't want to talk to him. He talks more to Bill Gates and to the head of NIH, a man named Francis Collins. So uh, I started looking some more at that. Well, what is Gates doing? And by the end of five or six months, I was able to track back something that no one else has done. It's in the book. It's in the manuscript you'll get. And that is as early as 2015 to 2017, Gates had decided to do his major investing and efforts in preparing vaccines for the next epidemic. And he set up an organization called CEPI, which is literally a, uh, it's like a money laundering operation. It's, he takes in tons of money into SEPI. Oh, and he did it with Klaus Schwab, Klaus yeah. Schwab. The World Economics Forum, yeah. Oh, that's right, who did the Great Reset and wrote a book about Great Reset. And he did it with a, another group that's been involved in really messing up uh, clinical trials. And um, that's the uh, well um, welcome the Wellcome Trust. And that was his beginning. Then he got some countries involved. And then within very quickly, he had Pfizer involved and uh, just, just about everybody you could think of who might have a big interest in this. And Moderna was involved very early. Now, this is four years ahead of this. And they developed back then the determination to make RNA and DNA virus uh, vaccines. It's four years. By the end of 2017, they're talking about getting it ready for the coronavirus and uh, SARS-CoV. And the only reason they had for that, I believe, is they were making headway in the labs, making deadly SARS-CoV viruses. This is the gain-of-function research, right? That's right, the gain-of-function research. You know your words. Good, good. The gain-of-function research and making vaccines for it. Now, what they found out was that you can't really make good vaccines because the uh, virus keeps morphing. It, you know, it keeps uh, genetically changing, mutating. So it's practically impossible to make a good vaccine. But then they also found out that it was very dangerous. And I tracked the research showing right up to the, to the months they are doing Operation Warp Speed, research showing that they shouldn't be giving it to humans at all even to experiment, because what they're doing is they're creating in your body a piece of SARS-CoV-2. They're making your body create it. They're injecting in you top four viruses, DNA and RNA, the top four vaccines. They're injecting in you either RNA, a strand of either RNA or DNA, which order your RNA in your cells to make the SARS-CoV spike protein. Now that's bizarre. That's crazy. It's never been done before. It would be nuts enough to reprogram your protein manufacturing on a very brief three-month schedule, maybe, of testing it on humans when the most recently approved 
vaccine, which was for Ebola, took 20 years. And 10, 12 years is not uncommon. So we can do it three months. And it then turns out, and they knew this ahead of time, that the spike protein, which was pretty much evaluated as and put there initially thinking that that's going to gain you entry into the human cell because they created Frankenstein mice with human receptors in them and uh, they, they, they proved it could be done. So, okay, we'll put it in humans and it'll get into the cell. But the And then hopefully the human is going to make antibodies to it or the T cells will get used to fighting it or something. So you're making an antigen in your own body, your own protein, you're making an evil protein in your own body. Problem is, it's well, that's very hazardous. How do we know how that's going to be controlled? This is all, this is like a, a Rube Goldberg kind of craziness from the, from childhood, of those of you who may have heard of that. A question about this, when, if, um, you know, if it causes our cells to make the spike protein, they're not going to make just one. I would think each cell would make hundreds, thousands, maybe millions. And if enough cells are, you know, instructed to make it, I would think it would create a, a gigantic cascade of spike protein. And what would that, I mean, would that cause a massive downregulation of the ACE2 receptor in cells? Or like, what do you think happens? Well, we don't know what happens because they didn't study it. But we do know some things. We do, first they lied and they said that the only place that would be making the spike proteins would be in the arm where you got injected. Well, that's a bunch of malarkey. Now known that, of course, the orders to make these pieces of SARS-CoV-2, the exact replica, because they're using the DNA and RNA from SARS-CoV-2, manufacturing it artificially in the lab, because it's cheaper than pulling it out of the virus itself, but it's identical. And not only are you getting it everywhere in the body, so cells throughout the body are making an unknown number of these these, uh, spike proteins, but the ovaries turn out to be a place of excessive concentration, which leads to the risk of, of course, sterility, but it's, it's already just messing up young women and older women in their menstrual cycles, causing all kinds of problems. But that isn't even the worst of it, because what what the, they knew all along, again, by, by uh, researching the scientific literature, putting it in the book and putting it then in a 30-page chronology, what they knew all along was that the spike protein itself is toxic. Protein didn't just allow SARS-CoV-2 to enter the cells and make them sick. Protein, the, uh, the spike, actually causes bleeding and then excessive clotting. And as you pointed out, it causes this cascade at times. And this is what's killing people. As far as we can tell, the CDC and FDA won't study it. But we've got over 5,000 deaths now in the U.S. alone reported which is huge. Nothing like this ever happened in history. I mean, usually- well, I thought also in, in Europe, it's up to what, 16,000 deaths, right? Yes. It, it's high. I don't remember the last count from Europe, but it was several times higher than here. I mean, no, the last number I heard, I'm trying to remember what the last number was, 10,000 and it came up to 15 or 16, but the numbers don't matter. They're big, they're huge numbers. And it's probably over 6,000 now in the U.S. And if in the past, if you'd had 50 deaths reported with vaccine, you'd take it out. You don't give it to people anymore. So this is really bizarre. And um, 
So you get these cascades, these they call cytokine storms, overreaction in the body. So your body is attacking itself. And one of the things that the uh, T cells do when they, they see a wounded cell, they kill it. So cells are getting killed. Inflammations are being caused. And that's in various ways is causing a lot of the mild illnesses that like 50% of people are getting at least mildly ill. I mean, it's bizarre. And, and it accounts for the deaths probably is what one of the accounting for the many deaths. So, but all of this, I had to expand my horizons because I used to like to think that psychiatry was so badly motivated and so little science that it, it and the drug companies were just all corrupted because they didn't have anything to work with that the medically based and psychiatry can't be medically based. It's, it's subject matter is the human spirit. It can't be medically based, but the, I mean, if it's medically based, then it becomes neurology. It doesn't even because it doesn't stay psychiatry when you find a genuine medical cause for something. So when the doctor tells you, you know, yeah, you got a biochemical imbalance, he's lying. I mean, if there was a real physical thing there, the psychiatrist wouldn't be handling it. He would have to go to people who knew something about the brain and the body and what kinds of things to do for it. So it, I was wrong. It turns out that, of course, the, the uh, pharmaceutical industry is just as corrupt as pretty much everything else it does, but especially the vaccines because they are so wealth-inducing. But then the final thing, and then I'm going to take a deep breath and be quiet, and that is that these are power-hungry people. Bill Gates was planning this entire thing just before we went into the publishing process a few weeks ago, I found a master plan that his organization, SEPI, had presented to the World Health Organization. No one else ever found it. That's in the book. Uh, it's in the manuscript you'll get if you buy the book. And uh, World Health Organization. But then just the final word, I'm definitely not a conspiracy theorist. I mean, I couldn't go, I couldn't go to court all the time. If I had one conspiracy theory that I couldn't convince a jury was actually real, I'd be done with. Right. Yeah, that's true. I mean, just done with forever. And um, so the, what I found is I tracked all of the people who were behind this, which means all of the top billionaires are involved in this, except maybe not Larry Ellison. All the top, uh, and that includes, you know, Bezos, Gates, Buffett, uh, Palmer, the Waltons, no less, Bloomberg, big guy, and then Michael Bloomberg, Larry Page, and then, and then of course, the, the newest one, the, the, the um, Musk, he, uh, they're all heavily invested in China, all of them. And when they talk, they never talk about America. They never praise America. I haven't found any of them. I still want to study Musk some more because he's like a new, new top, top guy, but billionaires. But they all seem to favor China because that's their big market. That's where they're going. And they love totalitarianism. So I don't call them capitalists. I call them predatory capitalists. They're not for freedom. They're for the old days, fascism and stuff like that, whatever you want to call it. They want to work with power and they all work with the Chinese communists. And during Trump's uh, last year, they began meeting openly. Michael Bloomberg, Klaus Schwab, they began meeting openly with the premier of China President of China, Xi Jinping, trying to reverse Trump's efforts to decouple America from China, to stop feeding China, to stop 
you know, giving them wealth and technology and, and so on and training them. Right. So it goes very deep. And that's where one of the places the book ends up is it ties into the many other books about the Chinese empire, the empire they want to build and how they've invaded our universities. They've invaded our laboratories. They've invaded our politics. They probably invaded the last election. Are you surprised that the general population has, you know, been so successfully scared into, uh, you know, masking and all this other stuff? I mean, well, I'm disappointed, but I, I'm not shocked. Um, but yes, it's terribly disappointing. I think what needs the people need to realize this is a very important lesson that I'm not sure anybody else is really giving is that the natural tendency of human beings in large groups, and remember, we weren't in large groups till 10,000 years ago, and that's just when we began to go into villages. And a lot of us never even got that far. We stayed as primitive people, supposedly primitive people. And that as soon as human beings have gotten into large groups, they have been ruled by monsters. It doesn't matter how where you go, go into the history, Chinese emperors, uh, go into the uh, history of Europe, one violent uh, dictator or pope after another. Christianity, which was supposed to be a message of peace, becomes a cause for multiple wars, at least is said to be the cause of multiple wars. So if you look at the history of human beings since we became, quote, civilized, we have always lived under terribly oppressive conditions. You know, it, not just the Middle Ages. Freedom is a new idea. When the founders of our country signed the Declaration of Independence, they knew they were signing their death warrants if they lost, because that's the nature of what was always gone on in the world. The King wanted to, the King George, he especially hated John Adams for some reason, but everybody who signed that document, he wanted, of course, killed, tracked down, yeah. find him on a sailing ship, kill him, bring him in, we'll hang him. So the history of the world has been human beings in groups tend to become passive and docile and accept whatever regime it is, communist China, USSR, Cuba. You rarely get internal rebellions. These empires lose against another empire. These are basic lessons that we don't talk about. America is unique beyond the belief of most or understanding of most people. You know, we talk about, you know, the American excellence, America being a special place. Oh my God. It's so beyond anything that the folks who talk about it really realize. America was founded on the basis of protecting individual freedom. It was bound to, to end in that civil war that was a good part of a slavery to let people tell you, oh, slavery wasn't the issue at all. It was a good part of slavery. And a lot of young men died in a battlefield oh, because they, they believed in freedom, the coming of the Lord, retribution. So, and sure, the country was compromised. They, uh, they did an unholy compromise with slavery. Many of them owned slaves. And beyond that, they said, we won't even talk about it, except for Ben Franklin and a few other people. We won't even talk about slavery right now. But you know, we'll end the slave trade. That wasn't a big deal. It just made them even slaves even more valuable. But finally, you know, the principles of America led to this awful civil war and then to the end eventually of Jim Crow in our, well, in my lifetime. And um, that's humanity. But we are the only nation whose principle is individual freedom and protecting it. And that's been lost now. 
we don't have a two-party system. We have a, we're verging now on a one-party totalitarian system and the Republican Party has gone down the, you know what? The real hope I believe is, is getting very political is the uh, the middle class of America, the working class of America, the people who put America first. If you dig enough into Klaus Schwab's uh, writings, you find out that he just says it outright. Uh, we are being in 2020. We're being we're being run out of business by Donald Trump and the American First Movement because they won't put up with globalism. They're not going to cow down. You might as well have said the. Uh, you know, those people are going to throw their masks off. Believe me, we, we can't allow this to happen. But so, so what's um, now that this has played out for a year and a half? I mean, I'm seeing still like Australia locked down again. Canada never seems to come out of it. I mean, Israel is back in. It just seems like that, like it's it's just nonsensical. You know, oh, wear masks. Oh, now you need to be vaccinated. Oh, now that you're vaccinated, you got sick again. We're going to lock you down again. Like, I just I don't understand how people don't see that this well, more, may never end. Yeah, I re- really understand, uh, Richard, what you're saying. More and more people are understanding. I'm working with, uh, I'll tell you, it's very, very different than standing up to psychiatry where I was, quote, the conscience of psychiatry. There are millions of consciences of America. I mean, there's a lot of people now who know it's all on the line. And um, a lot of physicians know that this is a pack of nonsense. I'm a member of a group, COVID-19 group of physicians, and my wife has been honored to be in there too. And there's a thousand people in that, just that hand-selected group, not selected by me, but hand-selected group. And there's groups all over the the, the world that are, are concerned about these issues. And a lot of people in America are thinking the way you are, uh, you know, starting their own radio shows, their own TVs, their own companies. We need to actually build, rebuild America. I'm calling it the uh, refounding of America. I'm a refounder. You're a refounder. We, we need refounding of America. And uh, we're not going to get to take over CNN or, or any of that stuff. Uh, we're going to have to build our own and let those die on the line. We're going to have to build around at least half of America uh, rebuild the country based on individual freedom and political freedom, based on Judeo-Christian principles, based on honesty and honorableness. We're going to have to do this. And uh, let's hope we can, because the, ten- the momentum of the world has always been crushing. So what do you think the, um, I mean, the end game, what, what is the end game as of now? And what do you think, uh, I mean, do you think we're going to be okay? Or who knows? The battle changes every day. Yeah, that, that is definitely up to how many people, and it doesn't take 50% of Americans, probably take 5 or 10%. Progressives can, that we now have running Democratic Party can practically not think a straight line. They, they just, uh, they don't function at a high level. They're so corrupt. There's not going to take a huge number of us, but a huge number of people just have to say, we're rebuilding a different America. And, and then we'll see what happens. Um, it, uh, it's going to take a lot of effort. And they're hurting us a lot. They, you know, we all bet on the the honorableness of YouTube and uh, Twitter and uh, all those other places. And of course, they've all turned on us. And not all your your people in your audience may know that uh, basically anybody who speaks even close to the way I do is being taken down. Oh, I know. One of the things I would ask your audience to do is you can't go to my 40,000 you know, if we had over 40,000 people who would 
who were on our YouTube and they would get an announcement from YouTube whenever we put something up. And right now we're, uh, we're nowhere. We're basically down on YouTube. So if you want to stay in touch with us, go, go to the Bregan.com, the website and get our free frequent alerts. That way you'll know when we're putting up something, you'll know when we're announcing something we've done. You'll know, uh, you'll get follow-ups on the book. We're going to figure out how to follow up on the book. So go, go to Bregman.com and get our free frequent alerts. But right now, even most more important, you know, go to um, wearethepray.com and, and get the book manuscript and immediately in the book, hopefully. So, yeah, I, I know that you're short on time. We have to go. How do you see this dynamic playing out in different countries? Do you think that the U.S. is the most likely country to, you know, to fight back against this? Or, you know, I, I thought, you know, I guess I thought other countries like Canada or Australia or New Zealand were kind of peace-loving, you know, nice places, but they seem to be some of the most draconian of anywhere. I mean, no, what do you see yeah, as a dynamic? Don't about, uh, Great Britain. Yeah. That would have been my bet, too. I would say, oh, the, the people who are going to fight back are, uh, and I'm not sure. I mean, um, some of the African countries seem more cynical because they know the kinds of exploitation they've experienced. But uh, it's America. It's going to be America. There is a movement in Germany. There is a movement in Australia. There are European and Australian groups. There's a movement in South Africa. And, um, and my wife, Ginger, is quite active in some of these groups that work up. And, uh, but it's America. It's going to rise or fall on America. It has, uh, you know, we've been the policemen of the world. We do a bad job of it because uh, so many of our presidents have been globalists and our Congress and our Senate. And, uh, you know, there are people who will dump America and Israel the drop of a hat. Many, many of our leaders, but, but we got to, but not the people, not at least half or more of the people. And yeah. maybe a lot of other people's people, when they start learning, will realize, oh my God, this is the only country in the history of the world that was based on rational principles, not on heredity or ethnicity, not on who won the war. George Washington basically was our leader when he won the war. And he's the first leader like that who ever said, I won't be king. I wasn't fighting to be king, you idiots. Yeah, that's rare. It was unheard of. King George said he'd never heard of such a thing. If it was true, Washington would be the greatest man who ever lived. That was King George. It's time for him to say that. Information to get off across the, off across the ocean. Yeah. Well, very good. Well, Peter, thank you for all that you've done over the years, and thank you for what you're doing now. And, um, you know, uh, people can get your book. They, they should go to, what's your website again? Is it just Bregan.com? Yeah, Bregan.com, and you'll see that at the top, or go to just a website that isn't cluttered up with all of me and ginger and you can go to we we are the and easily get the book then explore the website later we are the okay well very good peter thank you for coming okay. and uh, i really really appreciate it very much you're very very welcome Mitch. good luck with your show good luck with your work